What's your name? Tom Dries. How long did you play professional baseball? Nine seasons. How many no-hitters did you throw? Three. What's your occupation now? Uh, wealth Management Advisor at Morgan Stanley. Coming up on this edition of Life Around the Seams, our guest is former pitcher Tom Drees. Not only did he throw three no-hitters, they all came in the same season, and two of them were consecutive starts back-to-back. But he did not get called up to the major leagues at the end of that season, and many have wondered through the years if it had something to do with what Tom and his teammates did one day in Albuquerque. We'll discuss that and more. Tom Drees is next on Life Around the Seams. Former Major League pitcher Jim Bouton once wrote, you spend a good piece of your life gripping a baseball, and in the end, it turns out it was the other way around all the time. Welcome to Life Around the Seams, a podcast about baseball people who have interesting stories from between the lines, and sometimes even more interesting stories outside the lines. Here's your host, Josh Sushan. All right, Tom. Thank you for joining me. Uh, I've known about your career as an avid baseball card collector, even as a minor league baseball card collector, as a kid, someone who read the sporting news and the baseball digest. I always um, knew about you and your story, and I'm really excited to talk to you today. Oh, thanks, Josh. You must be a connoisseur of minutia then, because it would take a long time to find all that information about me, but I appreciate the thoughts. Okay, so for the audience, I want to give a quick background about Tom. He went to high school in Minnesota, went to college at Creighton University. He was drafted in the 17th round by the Chicago White Sox in 1985. And we're going to skip ahead to 1989 because that's the year where you probably had more headlines of your life than any other year of your life. No doubt about that. Right. Yeah. So going into that season, it's now your fourth year. You've gone from rookie ball to single A to double A. Now you're at triple A. You're with the Vancouver Canadians, the Chicago White Sox triple A affiliate. Going into that season, how are you feeling about just your life and your career and where you're at right now? Well, the year before I had been in double A with Birmingham and uh, I had a really good year. In fact, I, I got called up for the Cops, uh, Cubs Sox Windy City Classic, which they don't have anymore because now they have interleague play. Pretty confident I was going to get brought up at some point in time that year, and then I hurt my shoulder in uh, late late June, early July. Took had to take uh, the rest of the month off. I tried to come back, didn't work out too well, so I ended up having shoulder surgery in um, September. Or, I'm sorry, November, and then I tried to come back quickly in spring training. So I was excited to be in AAA. I didn't have my regular stuff. You know, I, I probably lost three or four miles an hour at that point in time, but um, you know, it was my first chance at AAA. I was excited about that. And so just went up there and, uh, you know, I was with an older bunch of guys and and got off to kind of a slow start and they actually put me in the bullpen and, and um, you know, they're talking about maybe Steve setting me back down. And then one of the guys in our team, Jeff Bittiger, uh having a good year. He got called up to pitch for the White Sox and they slotted me in his – start um, that turn and I threw my first no hitter and kind of went from there and the rest was history. So a quick turn of events. Yeah. So the first one is on May 23rd, 1989, Vancouver is at home against Calgary, Nat Bailey stadium. 
Uh, I'm an avid newspapers.com subscriber. And so I looked it up and Vancouver Sun described it as miserable conditions and the announced <laughs> and the announced crowd was 289 fans. Yeah. Just how cold was it? Uh, you know, Vancouver never gets that cold, but it was it was raw, I guess is the right word for it. You know, it's I still can remember like a foggy night and nobody was there, and it was probably 45 to 50 degrees. And uh, Vancouver already plays the you know, heavy air, small park. Um, and that night was the case for sure. And so, um, you know, there, there weren't a lot of people there, but it's just one of those games. There weren't even a lot of hard hit balls or chances or anything just on both sides. So it was a one or nothing game and, uh, it was out of the blue. That's for sure. Pitchers always say that, you know, oh, I didn't know about it or I did know about it. When were you aware that, okay, I am have not given up a hit yet? I think when I got the first hitter out usually is when I knew. <laughs> <laughs> I, I never believed that. I mean, how do you not know if you haven't given up a hit? I, mean, I, I guess I've always, I've always uh, kind of kept tabs in my mind how many hits I've given up, and all you do is turn around and look at the scoreboard. So uh, I was pretty aware from the get-go. I, most guys on the team probably aren't paying that much attention until you, know, you get into the middle innings, but – I always knew exactly when I gave up my first hit, especially after that game. I always knew. So, yeah. How would you describe your emotions, your anxiety, your excitement as, as you get into the sixth, seventh, eighth, ninth inning of that one? Uh, you know, I, I just had never gone that far before in a professional game. And so I think you go out there and, and I'm just hoping – to keep going as long as I can, because like I said, I, I was starting and then I was almost in, they put me in the bullpen, but I never got a chance to throw out the bullpen because you know, the bit got called up. So um, I was just trying to go as long as I can, which is, I mean, it's so much different than today's game where people probably don't understand that, uh, you know, pitching nine innings was something that we all were striving to do back then, where today it's, you get through five and six and everybody's happy, but I like to try to complete everything I started. And so, they're just kind of grinding along and uh, seeing how far I can last. So now your second start, well, your first start after that is five days later, May 28th. And I see that it's a double header. So there must've been some rain or something that, that caused a a double header in order to to set that up. Is that right? It must've been. Yeah. Because uh, I mean, it always rained in Vancouver. So uh, the odds are probably pretty high. There was a rain out and, uh, so, it was, but it was a great day, and Vancouver draws really well. It's a nice park. They they support the team, and and it was a beautiful night. And um, I still remember warming up in the the bullpen. And our pitching coach was uh, a guy named Mo Drabowski, who, you know, he'd been in the big leagues forever, and uh, he was kind of a prankster, and you always know, like to have fun. He, I still remember I started going. I went to the bullpen and started throwing, and he <laughs> he goes up and says, "Dreesy." Don't even think about another no hitter because that never happens. Just go out and, and pitch your game. So that was a that was pretty funny. That we talked. We still talked about that till uh, you know, the day we he passed away about ten years ago. But we stay in contact. We always talk about that. So that was a fun one. But lo and behold, you do throw another no hitter, and this was seven innings. But nonetheless, it's a no hitter. And um, you know, as as, as this one is going along, you're not just thinking I haven't given up a hit, but you're thinking I haven't given up a hit in, in X number of innings now and back to back starts. How did the second one compare to the first one, knowing that, oh my goodness, like there's outside of Johnny Vandermeer, and I guess there's a couple of other guys from like the 1910s that did it. Um, mm-hmm. No one else had ever done back to back no hitters. 
no and i this one definitely had a lot more uh adrenaline you know it was like i said it was um something that my teammates were well aware of what was going on and no one was talking to me after about the third or fourth inning and uh the dugouts were pretty small in vancouver and uh it had a lot of adrenaline the other team you know they they were aware too. In fact, there was a couple of guys in that team that I played against, and and there's you know some noise coming out of their dugout, and it it it, it was fun. It was uh, experience that once in a lifetime. I mean, no question that you're you're not going to have that happen again. So it was definitely um, something that I have fond memories looking back on. The newspaper, the province mentions a ground ball in the seventh inning that deflected off your glove. It goes to the shortstop Keith Smith, who then bobbles it. And so the official score has to make a decision and he decides error. <laughs> How nervous were you about looking back at the scoreboard to see if it was a hit or an error or what? You know, Smitty was a great defensive shortstop and uh, he makes that play 98 out of a hundred times. And so I think, you know, I don't think there was a lot of complaining about it just because he was such a good shortstop and it was, you know, it wasn't like it was even a bang, bang play he would have thrown the guy out by, you know, a couple steps if he would just came out. So it was an error, but, you know, I think that the, I can't remember the name of the, I think the guy's name was Pat Carl, the official scorer. But he, you know, I was in Vancouver for, you know, a couple more years after that. And so he'd always would talk about that was a, that was a, you know, his big call in his life. But uh, it was, <laughs> I don't know if there was a lot of doubt about it in my mind anyway, maybe the other, maybe the other team thought so, but for me, it was definitely going to be an error. You can't, you don't lose a double no hitter on a you know, play like that. I mean, it was a, if it was a bang, bang, it could have been a bang, bang. That's one thing, but that guy, you know, the runner would have been out by a long way if he makes the play. So you've thrown two straight no hitters now. And I'm curious about the celebration because that was game one of the double header. The second game starting in about 30 minutes after that. So describe what you can remember about between games and the excitement, but then at the same time, you know, for your other teammates, they got to get ready to play another ball game. Yeah. I don't even remember the second. I don't even know if I went out for the second game. I think I stayed in, but uh, it was, I think what had happened too was um, one of my teammates, another left-handed pitcher, I got called up. I mean, he didn't want to tell anybody because he didn't want to like, uh, ruin the moment for me and so it was it was a tough situation because you know he pitched back to back no hitters and then they call up another left-handed pitcher as a starter and so you know that he after everybody went back out on the field you know for the second game you know he kind of sheepishly let me know and you know I was happy for him but it was obviously tough for me thinking wow what else does the guy got to do to get the call um and so uh that that kind of Took a little bit of fun away, but you know, we went out and still celebrated afterwards that night. That's for sure. I always find this interesting because someone, as someone who works in AAA and is around these guys all the time, um, you know, you're so close to your life changing and going to the major leagues and all of that entails. And for some guys, they're able to block it out and, and just be where they are. And for other guys, it's this all consuming thing and it can really impact them in a negative way. And, and as, and as you're just describing that, I'm thinking about, the emotions and how much the emotions must be conflicted at that when you're so close, you're like, well, what else do I have to do? But yeah. yet, okay, it's not going to make me any better if I get, if I become this salty guy who's angry because he's not getting called up. Yeah, for sure. I, it, 
no, that was my first year in AAA. So I didn't have, I don't think I had enough time to be uh, you know, angry, malcontent yet. You know, that, that would probably come in a couple of years. But at that point in time, I was still climbing the ladder, I guess. Uh, you know, my first year, you know, A-ball, AA, AAA, um, first experience up in that, you know, flying airplanes to games. And so you definitely, you know, walk the fine line because it is hard. I mean, it's hard. You don't, you don't want to seem like you're content or happy to be in the minor leagues because that's not why you're there. So it's kind of like, you know, do you, do you want to have too much fun because they act like you're having too much fun because you don't want to be there. I mean, nobody wants, nobody wants to be there, but, um, so that, that's the thing that some days it really can get to you. Like, God, you know, what am I doing down here watching another AAA baseball game? You know, you're, especially the older you get, it gets harder and harder to get excited about going to watch another meaningless AAA baseball game um, when you want to be somewhere else. Nowadays, all AAA games are streamed live on MILB.TV. We have high-def cameras everywhere. We have, we have all these social media platforms in which we can immediately post videos of highlights of everything that you want. Um, for your two no hitters, were there any local TV stations that that filmed it? Is there any video that exists that you still have a VHS tape or anything? I don't think so. I mean, I, I, I don't. I think the only thing we might have, and I don't even know if I have one, and I never, maybe somewhere in my basement is, uh, you know, we used to the pitchers that weren't pitching would take um, the, the old camcorder out and video the guys pitching, you know, to just so that you can look at look at how you, your mechanics were the next day. Um, so there might be one of those somewhere, but I don't, I don't even remember watching that later. So maybe there's not, but there's no, it's, it's like Will Chamberlain's hundred point game, you know, maybe it never really happened, but, uh, but, but luckily I lived it. So I know that it did. So in, in terms of interview requests, especially after throwing the second one, describe what are the different interview requests that you had in the five days leading up to the next start after that? That one, that got crazy. It was, um, we don't, the minor leagues at that time, like you said, you know, today it's a lot different with the social media and with uh, the streaming, but back then, you know, you're relying on newspapers, whether it was the USA Today or local papers. And it was, we hit the road, I think the next day after that. And um, I still remember my, you know, I was going to be pitching four days later and my roommate was so tired. I think we were at Tacoma or something. My roommate was so tired of the phone ringing in the hotel because it was nonstop for three days for requests for interviews and there's going to be a TV camera coming over and you know, could they meet you at the park and meet you at the hotel. Um, and luckily back then, like if you were going to pitch the next day and it was, the team was traveling, they sent you a day early. So our first game of the road trip of our next road trip was to Albuquerque. And so they shipped me out a day early. And so then I went down to Albuquerque and kind of got some peace for a day until, you know, the next, until the day of the game, but it was, it was something that I don't think anybody really ever seen in AAA. It got a lot of attention. And uh, so that was pretty fun for me. It wasn't so much fun for my roommates, but for him, for me, it was good. So, so now all the headlines are, you know, can he throw three in a row and it's an Albuquerque where I live now it's against the Dukes, the old team at the old ballpark, still the exact same location, but all new. And uh, first inning, I see Mike Huff fly out to left. Mike Sharperson walks on four pitches Jim Pankovitz flies out to deep right field and then Tracy Woodson hits a two run Homer to left field. And so that there goes the, uh, the opportunity for a third, no hitter, uh, describe yeah. your emotions there. Um, in that first inning here in Albuquerque. 
you know what? I was a little, oh, not a little, I was a lot, very disappointed. I didn't get a chance for it to go longer. Yeah, I think that, I, if I remember right, there was like 15,000 people. I think it was a pretty big crowd there. I don't know if it was because of that or maybe there was some kind of other um, you know, novelty night or something, but it was disappointing to have it in so fast. And uh, I still remember, you know, pitching in Albuquerque as one of my old managers always called it, it as like pitching on the moon. Right? Like you, know, you pitch that down there because anything hit in the air might go out of the park. And I was a fly ball pitcher, and it probably wasn't a real good, uh, a real good equation for a fly ball pitcher to be pitching and trying to extend a no history in Albuquerque because, you know, anything up in the air, you're holding your breath. And you know, Woody, who I actually I, I got to know him pretty well because the next year, I think it was the next year, he came to Vancouver. And so he played with us. And uh, I still remember after, you know, he crushed that ball. We ended up winning the game, but he crushed that ball. And I still remember the, the next day they had a big vice grips and the, you know, for like to work on bats and stuff in our clubhouse. And I, I took a ball and I squeezed it into a square <laughs> and I signed it, you know, like, thanks for breaking the streak, Woody, and sent it over <laughs> to him in the clubhouse. And so then he sent it back with uh, like a, something else like a ball that was destroyed like i think this is the one you meant because it hit so much farther so we, and then we got to be good friends after uh after we came over to vancouver but um yeah it was it was a, that was a disappointing finish to the to the run at the same time you got the victory in the game you pitched six innings that's hard to do in albuquerque again you got the win this is back when wins and losses mattered for starting pitchers so ultimately you're, you're doing your job, you know, and you, you can't always throw no hitter, but you still got the win in the game. I did. Yeah, I did. It was, uh, you know, if you can hang around there for six innings, you got a chance because uh, both teams have a chance to score a lot of runs in that place. Yeah. All right. So I want to set up another significant newsworthy item from that season that occurred in Albuquerque. But first I want to set the stage because in 1989, we do not have the internet. We do not have direct deposit. We do not have internet in order to pay our utility bills. You are employed by a team in Chicago. Your home base is Vancouver. How would you and your teammates get paid? How would you get checks? How would you get the money into checking accounts to pay your bills? Back in those days, the White Sox would put 25 paychecks in a big envelope, overnight envelope, and send it to the team. And so we had uh, a veteran team, as I said earlier. I was, even though I was 24, 25, I was, you know, first year in AAA, and we had a lot of, a lot of salty guys, you know, in their late 20s, 30s that had come down from big league time. And I was a single guy. Getting my paycheck on time wasn't as big a deal for me. But you know, there were some married guys in the team with families, and you know, they had bills to pay, and they you know, needed to send money back home. And uh, the paychecks had come late you know, for a couple times, and one time it was in one day late. Another time it was like four or five days late. And guys were frustrated. And I think what happened is, you know, we, we go to Vancouver and that morning, I'm, I'm sorry, we left Vancouver to Albuquerque. And in that morning, the paychecks weren't there on payday. We didn't get them. Like, um, and the guy said, if they're not here by the time the game starts, you know, we're not playing. Well, I think most of you guys just thought it was a bunch of guys blowing off steam, right? So we get there, we go out and they're, take our batting practice, do our pregame work and come in. One of the, one of the veteran guys is like, they, you know, to their trainer traveling, who's also the trainer slash traveling secretary is like, Hey, you know, we got our checks. He's like, no, they're not here. He goes, all right, we're out. And he, I looked over and he's taking about four or five guys are taking their baseball stuff off and putting their civilian clothes back on. And, uh, 
I guess we're doing it. And so the whole team got out, got dressed, went back on the bus, went back to the hotel. And uh, it was crazy because it was a, I think it was a Bob Feller night or down in Albuquerque. So it was a pretty big crowd. I think if I remember, it was like 10 or 12,000 people. And it was a big deal for them, for Albuquerque. And uh, we went back to the hotel and didn't play. And I don't know, you know, what the White Sox had to reimburse Albuquerque for. I assume they did because they lost a big gate that night, um, all the concessions and everything. And, and uh, it made headlines, you know, no doubt about that, that uh, you know, AAA team goes on strike for not getting their <laughs> paycheck because that, that had never happened before. Um, so I just remember going back to the hotel and, and all of us just kind of sitting around in a big room like, do we really just do that? <laughs> Did that just happen? Are we, not, are we really not playing tonight? And uh, it was it was crazy. It was really a – crazy situation I, I can't still can't believe it happened but it did and um, there were some repercussions after that so it wasn't so good did so there wasn't necessarily like a vote taken at the ballpark before you left it was more just a couple of veteran guys said this is what we're I think doing. there was a vote I mean if I yeah there's probably a vote there's probably guys sitting around and said all right who wants to leave you know it was one of those the veteran guys say all right who's ready to go we're, we're out of here you know, a team of 25 guys, I don't think there was one guy that said, no, I want to play. I mean, it was, they were just kind of, okay, we're out of here. And so, uh, yeah, it, it, it was the whole, I mean, the whole team. It was unanimous. I mean, everybody was ready. Everybody just wanted to do it. Yeah, it, it was Bob Feller night, and the reporters asked him about it, and his quote was, if I wasn't paid, I wouldn't play either. He said, if you're not paid on time in the major leagues, you're a free agent the next day. But in the minor leagues, you could be out of a job. And I find this topic fascinating because of what's going on in the minor leagues these days. Now, things are better. Things are much better for minor leaguers. They, ne- they no longer have to find a place uh, to live. They no longer have to pay for their housing. They're, right. they're, the amount of money that they make has increased. It's still really low. Um, there's been a lot more work in order to get them food, to get them better food, healthy food. Um, but they're still not protected by the union. They still don't have any say in lots and lots of experimental rules that, that are tried out um, throughout the minor leagues. And so, again, I think it's just a fascinating time right now. And when I look back on what you guys did in 1989, I almost feel like you guys were kind of setting the stage for, for illustrating the inequities that exist for minor league baseball players. Yeah, I think so. It, it, was, it was a tough situation down there. You know, you're, you're not making any money. And, and you know, to go into a town and you're expected to find a place to rent um, on a short-term lease. And I mean, think about the cities now these minor leagues are in. I mean, you, you're playing in Sacramento. You're, you know, you're playing in uh, um, Round Rock, Texas. I mean, some of these places are they're the high rent districts now. And you got guys that are making $1,400 a month for five months. You know, they're you know, $1,200 a month for five months. I mean, it's it seems a little ridiculous to think that uh, someone can survive. You know, these, these are your assets. I mean, you're a billion dollar corporation and your, your best assets are down there trying to piece together their, you know, just a living arrangement. And uh, so I think that it was a pretty well overdue um, change. And I'm glad that, uh, you know, that, that people had the perseverance to push through it because, and I still don't think it's that great. I just had, lunch with a kid the other day that's uh, in AAA, you know, and you get bumped up to AAA and like $300 more a month, which he's not on a 40 man roster yet. So he's still not making any money, but the team is paying for him uh, in St. Paul. They're paying for his apartment. It's a nice apartment. So that makes a big difference to those guys. And um, 
you would think that the, I just would think the teams themselves would look at that and, and, and realize that, uh, you know, are we getting the best out of our assets by having them live in those kind of conditions? But it's just tradition. It's been that way forever. And it's just, Hey, you're getting a chance to play baseball. You should be happy with what you have. So it was hard to upset the apple cart. And then you didn't want to be the guy that made the noise because is that going to hurt your career? You know, your baseball career. And so it just it became a real double-edged sword of trying to change that. And I'm glad they finally got it done. So in 1989, CNN exists, ESPN exists, but you don't have social media. Um, when did you, when did it dawn on you just how big of a deal this was, how big of a story was that you and your teammates walked out and didn't play a game and, and it's headlines around the country? Uh, the USA Today, the next day. Uh, I remember seeing the you know, AAA team strike. They use strike. The AAA team goes on strike, I think was the headline. And so that became the, you know, the, the topic. And then I think I saw it on, you know, one of the, like the national news channels, you know, at the, the, the evening news, it was a little blurb at the end, the AAA team goes on strike and they interviewed a couple of one of the guys on our team. So I, that's when we knew that it was getting pretty big. And then, you know, the word came down from, you know, from our manager and the, you know, people in the front office at the White Sox, you know, weren't real happy with what happened. So that didn't, they kind of took that out on us the rest of the year. Um, the White Sox did. The other headline that you were in at that same time is that you were named to the AAA All-Star game. I think it might've been the same day that of the walkout or maybe the day before. Oh, so yeah. you, you also find out that you go to the AAA All-Star <laughs> game as all of this is going on. Do you remember how you found out that you were named to this prestigious AAA I, All-Star game? I assume it was the manager who told me. I, I don't remember exactly how, but I assume it was the manager that came in and told me because I remember Lance Johnson, the center, center fielder who played in the big leagues for a lot of time. We, we both went. And, uh, you know, it wasn't until I got to Columbus when uh, you know, Bucky Dent was a manager and he told me, you know, hey, when's your normal pitching day? I, I told him and he said, oh, good, you're starting then. So, you know, I knew I was going, but I didn't find out I was starting until I got there. So that was, that was fun. Uh, I want to get to the all-star game in just a second, but um, so once the, the one day walkout was over, you pitched the first game back and it was against Ramon Martinez <laughs> who had an extremely lengthy career. You went seven innings, you allowed three runs, you got the win. What do you remember about just what was it relief that, okay, this is over. We're playing. And once again, you, you got the victory in a tough, tough ballpark against Ramon Martinez. Yeah. I, you know, and I, I think everybody was just glad it was done. You know, I think that what had happened was the checks, the White Sox had sent the checks. They'd just been sitting on some assistant or secretary's desk in the office in Vancouver. So it wasn't the White Sox fault. It was probably it was the front office in Vancouver was, the, was where the issue was. So I think we were all glad it was just done. And we were hoping that it was resolved. We didn't have to worry about it anymore. So you start the AAA All-Star game. And again, you didn't give up any hits. Three innings, yeah. no hits. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> You're on a roll. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, no, it was funny too because I, I'm pretty sure that that was the first game that Joe Buck ever worked on the sideline. So, so I think we were one of the, uh, he interviewed a couple of us before the game or during the game. And I was thinking, okay, that, we we're Joe Buck's first interview. So look at that. And now he's, he's gone on to do a few, a few more things in the media, the world of media. But uh, yeah, that was a, the Triple A All Star game was, you know, it was fun. It was, uh, I think it was a, it, was a, it might have only been the first or second one. I think they just started that whole program. So it was, um, 
you know, there's a ton of guys that ended up playing for a long time in the big leagues there and uh, they're pitching against Ramon, you know, he's throwing his 95 and I'm throwing my 87. And, and uh, <laughs> it was, it was uh, a great experience. Let's skip ahead to August 16th of 1989. You're still a triple a and yep. Vancouver's home. You're playing Las Vegas. And here we are again. You throw another no hitter, <laughs> a third one in one year. Exactly. Yeah. And, and that one, the, uh, Larry Hines, the general manager of the White Sox was sitting behind home plate. So I thought, well, that's, that's got to help my chances to get called up in September. But yeah, that was the, that was probably the most um, satisfying one because it was, you know, later in the year, uh, it was, I guess the Las Vegas team that I think they had like seven or eight guys that played for a long time in the big leagues on that team and guys that you've heard of, you know, Alomar, Bayerga, Thomas, you know, Gerald Clark. There's a lot of guys that played for a long time uh, in that lineup. So that it's hard to believe, but uh, <laughs> we threw another one, but it happened. It was um, that one, just kind of a blur. I, all I remember about that one is just being at just the, the GM sitting behind the plate, and and then I think after the game, you know, walking in there, and I think he did a you know one of the shake of my hand, said, "Boy, I don't know how you do it." Which I don't know if that was the best thing for me to hear after <laughs> after that game, but that's just kind of the kind of guy he was. So I'm kind of glad when he got fired a couple of years later. So. <laughs> I, I read some article where I can't remember if it was the manager or the pitching coach that said, you know, the question was, well, what does he have to do to get called up to the big leagues? And the answer was, he doesn't need to throw three more no hitters. He needs three more miles an hour on his fastball or yeah. something like that. Yeah. Uh, that's got to be a tough thing to hear and read. Yeah, it is. But I think it's, it was, that was certainly the case back then, but even today, right. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Today it's probably even more prevalent that it's all about velocity. You know, it, it's well, back then, you know, a guy like Greg Maddox who didn't, you know, light up the radar gun could get guys out and still get a chance. Um, but, yeah, I mean, I was just pitching below the speed limit. I mean, there were a lot of guys that pitched like that. Um, and it was frustrating because, I mean, the goal of the object of the game is to get people out. And I guess if you never really get it, you can get, you're getting people out your whole career, but you never get a realistic chance to get people out on the big stage. That's the frustrating part because how do you know? So we know we get people out unless they get a chance. So later that year is the Pacific Coast League playoffs. Vancouver had won the first half. This is when there was first half and second half split. Yep. And your team came in last place in the second half, but you're in the playoffs. You sweep Calgary 3-0, and then you play Albuquerque in the PCL finals. And lo and behold, it's in Albuquerque. You're back in Albuquerque again, <laughs> and you clinch the PCL title. You are champions. And then you find out after the game that apparently only one player, reliever Jose Segura, was the only one to get called up on a PCL championship team. Yeah, I didn't even know he got called up. I, I, what happened was they hadn't called anybody up all year since the strike, since the strike, if that's the right terminology, since we didn't play that night in Albuquerque um, because of the paychecks. So no one got called up all year. And there's guys having great years. I mean, it, I, mean I obviously had some – headline uh, results, but there were other guys having fantastic years and the White Sox weren't that good. And they didn't, they didn't call one guy up the rest of the year. You know, they called a handful of guys up from double A. And so basically they were saying, well, if you guys want to go out and strike, we're not going to call any of you up. So that was, that was a frustrating part that, um, you know, we, we had such a great year as a team, a lot of really good individual performances and nobody got called up. So uh, I think Segura might've been up there earlier in the year before we had the walkout and, you know, I don't know if they would told him they're going to bring him back or whatever, but I mean, he was, he, uh, 
she, I didn't even know he got called up until you told me. So I just knew that nobody else did. And that was a frustrating year. No, no question. That's just what I saw in some headline. Um, yeah, that's probably know, right. Yeah. That doesn't surprise me. Yeah, that's probably yeah. right. Yeah. Uh, overall, your final numbers, 12 and 11, 3.37 ERA. In the PCL, a 3.37 ERA, 26 yeah. starts, 168 innings. Your whip was 1.27. I mean, that's, <laughs> that's a really good year. That, that's really good in any league, especially the PCL. Yeah, and like I said, there was you know, two or three other guys on there that had pretty good years too. And uh, I mean, Jack McDowell was on the team that year too. He didn't have a great year that year, but um, you know, he was our first round pick, and and I mean, they didn't call him up either. So it was they were definitely making a point. We're not calling any of you guys up. Was pretty much the bottom line. Yeah, that's that's hard to believe, especially nowadays. I mean, it's so different nowadays because you know there's bigger rosters and then you can add someone for a double header and there's paternity leave and there's concussion lists and there's roster manipulation so that you can set up your bullpen better against certain guys. So it was a different time, but it's still, um, yeah. I mean, to this day, I mean, I'm getting mad just thinking about this, you know, <laughs> guys, guys don't get paid and they're upset and now you're going to take it out on them the rest of the year. It's crazy to me. I've gone back and looked at some of the, uh, I can't remember if it was 89 or 90, but one year, like the White Sox only used 14 pitchers for the whole year. I mean, think about that. Nowadays, teams go through 35, 40 in a year. They use 14 pitchers. And when you're the, when you're the last guy cut in, in uh, two spring trainings, and they only use, you know, they only dip down one or two times all a year, it gets a little frustrating because um, there's just a different time. Guys were throwing, you throw 120 pitches every time you, as a starter, and that's just the way you did it. And today, it's just not, the, that's just not the case. All right, Tom. So 1989 is done. Three no hitters, all-star game at AAA, PCL title. You don't get called up. Basically, hardly any of your teammates get called up. But now you've still got the future ahead of you. The next two seasons you spent back in Vancouver, 1990 and 1991 again. Looked like you might have had an injury in 1990, but it looked like you continued to pitch well. How many more times did you feel like you were on the cusp of getting called up by the White Sox, and this might finally be the chance to get called up. Uh, you know, I don't think I really felt I was going to get much of a chance as long as the uh, Larry Himes is general manager. And in, in '90, I was pitching fine, but then I got hurt, and so that kind of wiped that year out. But then he got fired at the end of '90, and a new group came in in uh, spring of '91, and actually one of the guys who was instrumental in um, drafting me, like resurfaced again he was kind of the right-hand man to Ron Schuler, and so I went to spring training and you know I don't think they were expecting much just because I'd had surgery the summer before and um, this time instead of pitching after three months of rehab I had surgery in August I had six months of rehab and I came into camp probably throwing the best I'd ever thrown and so I kind of opened their eyes up and you know that's uh Sierra was the last guy I was the last guy I cut from spring training and um, you know that I felt like that could have been a call up at any time and uh, they brought me up to pitch in the Cubs Sox game and I struck out six guys in three innings at uh, Comiskey the new Comiskey and and um, you know, I pitched really well and uh, again they just didn't use many pitchers that year it was crazy they just they had the same five guys I think started I want to say over 150 games and um, they just didn't bring the guys up and so it was a tough situation. I just kept pitching in Vancouver and uh, finally got the call up in September. So when you finally did get the call up after all of this time at AAA, after all of these headlines, 
what were the emotions when you finally get told you're going to the major leagues? Well, obviously excitement, you know, it was, uh, unlike the prior year where nobody on our team got called up, I think about seven of us got called up. And so we were all uh, pretty excited and, uh, we're actually in, I think it was Edmonton or Calgary, one of those two. And, uh, so I was already done pitching. There's a couple games left. They told me I could, I flew back to Minneapolis. So they let me drive my car down to Chicago. And, uh, so getting to, you know, into Chicago and the clubhouse and, uh, yeah, that was pretty exciting. That was uh, great, but on the same, you know, same respect, it was a little bit anticlimactic because I was hoping I'd be there earlier. And again, I was just going to go there as a late inning mop-up guy or, you know, a blowout game mop-up guy. So, um, but I was still happy to obviously be in the big leagues, finally be able to say I made it. You pitched four times in that month of 1991. And one time you got to pitch the Twins. So you get to pitch in Minnesota. And statistically, maybe that month didn't go the way that you would like. But how did it feel to just wear a major, major league uniform and be on a major uh, league mound and pitch? Yeah, it was great. The night I pitched at the Metrodome, uh, there was 50,000 people there because that was the night the Twins clinched the uh, division. And uh, – so I had the whole family there and a lot of passes. And that was back in the day when you could leave as many passes as you could get from your teammates and didn't cost anybody anything where now, you know, these guys have to pay taxes on the tickets they leave. So um, you know, I left a lot of, a lot of passes and got into the game. Uh, Jeff Torborg got me into that game in Minnesota. And, you know, I left with a couple guys on base and um, the guy that came in after me gave up a double the Curry puck. I think I scored both runs. So it didn't look as, didn't look very good, but I felt like I threw okay. That, that was just a great, time being able to pitch in the Metrodome and uh, in front of family and friends. You ended up pitching two more seasons, the Rangers organization and the Mariners organization. You went back to the Pacific coast league playoffs in 1993 with, um, with Calgary. When do you start thinking about what's next though, in your career, you got a little taste of the major leagues. Did you feel like, you know, was that more motivating to you or did you start thinking about what plan B would be? Uh, you know, I, once you get into your late twenties and it's not happening, I think you start thinking about other plans. And so I, I've been working um, in the off seasons for my entire career. And, uh, you know, it was, I knew at the end it was time. Plus I had a hip, hip issue. Uh, I was, I was, it hurt all the time. I didn't know what it was. I, I, uh, I ended up having two big spurs on my hip. I got my hip replaced about 12 years later. I lived through it for 12 years, but it was pretty painful. And so I knew there wasn't, uh, you know, I, it wasn't going to be something that I was going to stay there and just keep grinding out as a career minor leaguer um, just to be, just to play. Cause I knew there was other things in life I wanted to do and it was time to move on. How do you prepare yourself for what you ultimately do now? You mentioned that you did some things on the off season, other internships. Was it something that you'd always wanted to do through college or how did yeah, you know? Out? I never, I mean, I was hoping I get drafted coming out of high, uh, college, but I wasn't sure. And I, I taken a job with KPMG, the accounting firm, and um, they were great with me for the first four years. I, I'd come back in the off season, and I would work in uh, their office from you know, November through spring training, and uh, getting good experience there. And then I started working in the um, financial planning business with uh, Merrill Lynch. I, I had a guy I met there, and so I did that the last five years I was playing, and um, you know it was it was a great entryway to the next career because I knew that I want to stay in the game somehow. And, and I ended up working with a lot of uh, athletes and um, we got to be, I mean, I got to be a person that they talked to about that kind of stuff. And, you know, we get on the 
we get on the bus and or the plane and I'm the only guy that was reading the green section of the USA Today. So uh, you know, everybody else is fighting over the red. And so I could always, I always got my, I always got my green section. No one else wanted to look at that. So, um, you know, I got a pretty good reputation with teammates and it uh, just spread from there. Yeah. I know we have to be careful about, we can't talk about specific teammates, but were guys, even as you were playing, starting to ask you for advice, whether it was like just casual advice or whether it was like really um, big picture, significant advice? Oh, for sure. You know, there wasn't, the money was just starting to get bigger back then. Um, in minor leagues, there weren't, unless the guy was signed a big bonus, which again, back then, they, you know, first rounders were lucky to get 250 or 150 or you know, somewhere there. There wasn't a huge money there is today. So um, yeah, there were, there were discussions, but most of it was on the basic level, helping with taxes or, you know, just um, mortgages that kind of minor stuff like that. So uh, but it was a good way to become um, ingrained in their lives. And, you know, I was fortunate because a handful of guys that I played with ended up playing for you know, 15 to 20 years in the big leagues, made a lot of money. And, um, you know, there've been people I've worked with ever since. It's been shoot over 20 years, maybe 25 years since you last played. How much does your 30, gosh, 30, come 30. on. Time goes fast. Yeah. Time goes fast. <laughs> How much, though, does your experience as a ball player and everything that you went through and understanding the frustrations, not being able to get called up, but also understanding the highs of playing, how much does that help you relate to your clients? I think it helps a lot. And um, just knowing what a player is looking for and knowing what they're, what's important to them, where I think a lot of times in our business, you know, you want to show somebody how smart you are by telling them all these different things they could be doing investment-wise, where it's more just the relationship where you gain the trust and you get to know guys and you know what they're going to face, especially after they get drafted. And it takes a few years to get to the big leagues. And then even at the big league level, you know, what they're going to see, who's, who's coming after them, you know, looking for money and investment ideas and, and uh, or opportunities, I should say. So it, it definitely helps. And the experience we have, I've had doing it for the last 29, 30 years is certainly uh added to that when I look back on what you and, and your teammates did in, in 1989 it, it resonated with me more even more this year because we're starting to see changes get made to the way that minor league baseball players have to live and things are not still as, as good as I think they should be but they're far better um, most importantly they no longer have to pay for housing Major league teams provide their housing. I think that's huge. They do get paid more. Basically, Major League Baseball eliminated one-third of the workforce so that they could pay what remained of the workforce about twice as much. Um, knowing what you went through, what's your big picture sense of, of, of how minor leaguers are responding to this and kind of and these organizations like advocates for minor for minor leaguers that are that are trying to make things better for them? I think it's great. In fact, I just had lunch with a a kid that's they call it a triple a in st paul here um, last week for the twins and he's talking about i said what are you doing living wise and he said well they they have they have a set up these apartments right across the street i said they're nice he said yeah they're really nice and so that's a big headache that gets taken away because when you are trapped you know you get called up in the middle of the year you go to a town you don't have any money you got to find a place to live hopefully the guy who you replaced was live with somebody you can move in, but maybe sometime it's a guy that has a family. And so now you don't have anywhere to go. And uh, you had no money because they pay you, they were paying you nothing. So that's a big headache to get out of the way, the living part of it. 
And, um, you know, it's still tough because I know you're getting an opportunity to play baseball. I understand that. And, and everybody's living their dream, but it, you probably are not making, a, I mean, even minimum wage when you factor in all the hours you're putting in the time you're putting in the effort and the emotions. I mean, it, it's a tough racket and, um, very few guys, I mean, everybody always notices they have the first round pick or the second round pick, but on a team of 25 to 30 guys, you might have three or four of those kind of players and the rest of them that have been in there for more than a year or two, they don't have any money from playing. That's for sure. So I think it's great what they've done. And I, you know, the only thing that, you know, I looked at and I saw the settlement was $185 million, which, you know, each guy gets, I think it was like five or $6,000, but the attorney's got 65 million. So that was, that was a pretty good deal for the attorneys. That's for sure. But uh, you know, like they, they did get something for the players and um, hopefully it's going to make it better and more palatable for these guys to live. Looking back on what you and your teammates did in 1989, do you regret it? Do you, do you wish that you or someone else would have said, maybe this isn't the best idea? Um, I don't regret the principle because I mean, these guys stood up for what they believed in. I do regret that there's probably a pretty good chance I would have got some service time that year. And um, maybe a couple more of us would have too. Well, I mean, there's guys that had great years. So we were thinking maybe three to six guys were going to get called up. And so I regret that part of it because who knows what happens after that? You know, when you're coming off arguably the best year I'd had pitching wise, and you go up there um, and make an impression and things can change versus you know, two years later, 90, uh, when I got called up in 91, you know, two years older and you just don't know how that's going to impact you versus getting up when you're still 25 years old or whatever it was and, and uh, getting a chance and pitching the best you pitched in your life. You know, you kind of wish you would have had that opportunity. Big picture about Vancouver. I mean, that's got to be a special place. So you spent three years there. You returned as a visiting player. I went to Vancouver one day. I looked like an amazing city. Um, you know, it seems like Vancouver would have a special place for you. Vancouver is a beautiful place. I mean, the stadium is small, but it's quaint, but the fans are into it. There's, if it wasn't 42 and raining, there'd be people there all the time, you know, and it's a great place for a young guy to live. Um, uh, that was, seemed like there was a, a lot of, um, young people living there. The town was vibrant, uh, other than the pain of customs coming in and out every time you go on a road trip. Uh, it was a lot of fun. It was, uh, it was the, probably one of the bigger cities in AAA. I mean, you think about, I mean, back then Phoenix was in there. Um, so there's, there's a couple other ones, but um, Vancouver was uh, you know one of the bigger cities. And, and so it was kind of nice to be in a big league town. And, um, but like I said before, I mean, you just, you don't want to get too comfortable in the minor leagues, but I guess if you have to be there, that's probably one of the better places to be. In terms of your family, your kids, um, you know, how much are they aware of, of what dad did at one point in his life? Do you have momentum, you know, do you have stuff on the walls at the home office or inside the office or around the house at all? Not much. I think we have, I have a college jersey from Creighton and a, and a White Sox and a Vancouver jersey, you know, down in, the, in our little workout room. But, and we talked about it. And, you know, it's amazing that even after this long, there's so many people with these autograph requests to fill out their baseball card collections i mean i still get them i still get three to five a week i can't imagine the guys that have you know, played a lot more than i did they must get boxes of them every week because uh there's so many people out there trying to get the you know their their collection filled and and so they see some of that um 
but it wasn't anything that I like pushed on them or talked about a lot. Um, I wanted them to have their own path and not feel any pressure to be anything that I did. So um, I don't think there's, there's very little memorabilia around the house. Let's just say that. You might already know this, but especially for the audience. So there's websites that exist. And basically if someone writes to you in the mail and you sign and you send it back, they're going to update the website, which means that you're then going to get inundated because now the word, oh, yeah. the word is out on the internet. Like, okay, yep. Tom Tree signed. So let's all bombard. <laughs> yeah, I, know. I know. I was in a, back when I used to go to bookstores and they had a, a, a dress book for former athletes. And I saw my address there and it was accurate. You know, this is 20 years. I was like, wow, there's actually a book where people are, uh, I mean, now I'm sure there's online information. You can find anybody online, but um, yeah, that it makes sense because a lot of times the writing seems the same. So I went to the same people writing over and over, but there are definitely a lot of cards that come through there. <laughs> All right, Tom. Well, I, I really enjoyed this. I, I think it's a fascinating story that from 1989 that resonates even more nowadays. And uh, especially because it happened in Albuquerque, where I currently live and work, it, um, it again, I, I just find it interesting. And I think that, um, you know, I, I'm, I'm torn about what you and your teammates did. Um, but I, I, it's, um, you know, I mean, I know that I've even talked with, with guys on our team over the years and they say, you know, you want to stick up for yourself. You want to stick up for your teammates in the industry, but then you're worried that something's going to happen to you. And, um, you know, and we saw that in 1989. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Plus the other thing was, you know, it was Bob Feller night. You know, we, that was like the eighth time that year we had Bob Feller. And so it was he, he, every time we play somewhere, it was either Bob Feller or the chicken. So we missed hearing all Bob's stories he liked to tell. So that was that was very tough part, too. All right, Tom. Um, thank you for your time. I really enjoyed the conversation and the memories. And, um, you know, I um, can't thank you enough. All right, Josh. Appreciate it. Thanks. Once again, that was Tom Drees. And this is Life Around the Seams.